This is Natalie Moore with Spark Science. Normally, I engineer the show, but this week I went to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference to interview planetary scientists about habitability in the solar system. LPSC is hosted near Houston, Texas, by the Johnson Space Center and the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Here we go. Neutron proton mass effect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, trans uranium, if you always uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. My name is Martin Van Crenadon. I'm a professor at the University of New South Wales, and I study geology. I look at Earth's oldest rocks, and I've studied really almost all aspects of that, about how the crust forms, and then what kind of habitats were there for the oldest life. And so I've been really fortunate, and, and really I'm one of the few that have tried to do those, tie those two together. Mm-hmm. And you said this is your first year at LPSC? <laughs> Yeah, so it's my first time coming to Houston. In fact, I've never been to Texas before, but I've always sort of had it in the back of my mind, and my research is now going into a direction where we think we've got something to say here. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that happened this morning. It was fun. Cool. Do you think yeah. you'll come back next year? Oh, uh, we'll see. It's you know, it's a it's a long way to come always, but. Um, Last year, I was in the States for four different meetings. I had four flights across. So it's, um, it's clear there's so much exciting research that goes on here. Uh, it's always a good draw. Um, so I try and shift it around a little bit. The Astrobiology Conference is always a big one for us. Where's that? Um, that also changes every two years it's held, but it always is in a different city. So uh, last year was down in Phoenix in Arizona. Oh, cool. Two years before it was in Chicago mm-hmm. and before down in Georgia. So it, wow. it moves around there. And your talk was really interesting. And I know that you already, you just gave that talk, but could you quickly summarize um, what your session talk was about? Sure. I mean, so we've been working on one of the oldest, but probably the most convincing evidence of ancient life on Earth, mm-hmm. this 3.5 billion-year-old setting in northwest Australia. And we've made a few discoveries there over the last couple of years that have shifted really the whole way we think about that area. It used to be thought of as just like a, a shallow marine setting, you know, just like a, a, a nice day at the beach sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But now with some of our discoveries and the mapping, it turns out it was a, a volcanic caldera, very active with actually eruptions and then also a lot of faulting, but a huge amount of fluid moving through it. And we've been studying stromatolites, and it turns out they're living on that circulating fluid in a volcanic caldera. Wow. And the really important discovery that was made a couple of years ago by my PhD student, Tara, she found a rock only a few centimeters high that turned out to be from a geyser. And it's unbelievable that something with such fine layering and textures has been preserved for so long, but it's absolutely diagnostic. Mm -hmm. And so that area so long ago was an exposed land surface. Wow. And the amazing thing was we found that it was inhabited by microbial life. Cool. And that's what you study, right? And that's what what our group studies. (laughs) And so then the implications are if we've actually got an early Earth analog, like a, an exact replica of what might have occurred on Mars, mm-hmm. 
And the way that research has been going now is it's starting to question where the origin of life started. And so the model has been that it started in the deep oceans, but now there's more and more evidence to suggest that oceans are not a good place for the life. Yeah. Even though NASA's roadmap is to follow the water in the search for astrobiology, mm. it actually turns out that before you get a living organism, to make the <laughs> molecules to get to that stage, it's actually better not to have a permanently wet environment. Mm. Because the simple molecules you get to make them more complex, to build up to something like RNA or DNA, you know, the genetic material that we pass between each other, mm-hmm. you need to have wetting drying cycles that bonds those molecules together. Mm-hmm. And so really the oceans now, many people think, are out for the origin of life. Yeah, I heard you say that any ocean world probably wouldn't... No, I wouldn't waste my money there. Yeah. <laughs> and there was actually a laugh from the audience because there's huge interest in going to Europa or mm-hmm. Enceladus. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, if they're permanently wet, despite the fact they're covered with ice, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But the fact they're permanently wet means that, yeah, they might be habitable if life got started, but it doesn't look like it has the right ingredients for life to get started. And that's a key for astrobiology that I don't think has really been emphasized enough. It's been focused on where does life on Earth occur? It occurs everywhere where there's water, of course, in the deep crust, in the atmosphere, in the oceans, lakes, everywhere. But in those volcanic and lakes. volcanic <laughs> lakes and horrible places, you know, extremophiles. But to get life started, you had to have a specific set of conditions. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the most likely environment now is on hot springs on land. Mm-hmm. And that's why our research has suddenly gained importance for a community like this, because we have a deep-time analog of that setting. And the question is, can it provide all the things you need to get life started? Mm-hmm. Like complexity, mixing this and that. Does it have the right chemical elements to get things started? Can it make polymers? Can it, you know, can it build that complexity? And the answer turns out to be yes. Mm-hmm. In our 3.5 billion year old analog, which is getting pretty close to the time when life probably started on Earth, we have the elements. We've got the complexity. We can see life getting a foothold in hot springs. Mm-hmm. And so then that has enormous implications for where else to go in the solar system to look for life, you know? So how do we know there wasn't hot springs on, like, Europa, Celadus, these places that you think might not have been able to sustain life? It's a good question, and the truth is we don't. We don't know that there wasn't at some point exposed land, and then it got covered by water, But from what we do know in studies on the Earth and other nearby planetary systems, we know the atmospheres form very early. Mm. And in fact, the oceans are modeled to have rained out onto the Earth in the first 10 million years or so. Mm -hmm. So it's probably the same for those icy water worlds of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, that that would have formed very early. And so it's unlikely that there were conditions where there was surface water mm-hmm. and land and hot springs in the right amounts. It's probable that it was a, an ocean world from the very start. Mm-hmm. So it's, we don't actually know, but it's not very likely. Yeah. So where are you looking besides Earth then? Well, it's funny because I only really got initiated into 
like the search for life on Mars a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't very impressed, I have to say. I wasn't very excited because it didn't have evidence of an ocean. You know, it had yeah. only a short period where it was wet. And, and they don't even so know how long. long. They don't even know how long, Sotane. That doesn't sound like a very interesting place to go. Yeah. But now that we know that there was a period where there was water on the surface and that it must have lasted for at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, possibly tens or even a hundred million years. And we know it had volcanoes all through that time, and that's the right mixture to get hot springs. Mm -hmm. And then there have been discoveries already from 2007, 2008, of hot spring deposits on Mars. That's very well known now. Mm -hmm. Beautiful opaline silica actually on the flanks of a volcano, just where you'd find hot springs today. And it's like, oh my God, they've got hot spring deposits. And on Earth, hot spring deposits host life, not just now, but all through the geological record, right back to 3.5 billion years ago. So my question to you is, if you had anywhere on the red planet to go, Mm -hmm. And people have talked about going to caves, looking at the icy polar caps and the cryosphere and the surface, or in hot spring deposits. Like, where would you go? What's the most likely chance of success? Mm -hmm. Hot springs every time. Mm -hmm. And not only because they harbor life, but they have this unique capacity to preserve and entomb life. Because the, the, the hot water is flowing out, the the, the microbes are living in that hot water, but the hot water is filled with silica. Mm -hmm. And the silica actually entombs the microbial communities right away. And so it's like instantaneous mummification. Wow. And that preserves those signs of life back through the eons of time. Mm -hmm. Whereas in many other systems, they get degraded, and because minerals regrow and form, they get coarse and stuff. But the beautiful thing about those, the exciting thing about those Martian deposits is they're still made up of opal. And opal is like a semi-stable mineral. Mm -hmm. It will recrystallize and form bigger grains if you touch it with any heat or, you know, cover it with another layer of rock or something. But this hasn't changed from opal. So the preservation potential is unbelievably good. It's just, it's so exciting. Even with all the radiation and... Yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah, the radiation is a is a problem, um, but that's a problem for any surface rock. So anything yeah. that they want to go and look for for organics is a problem. Mm -hmm. What I haven't read about, and that's my own limitation, I haven't read about you know does silica protect organics? Mm -hmm. But the th the thing is, and so there's there's two things in this um, debate. Is one is sort of like, okay, where would you go to f find signs of life, and what are those signs of life? going to be. So organics is always talked about as like the gold standard, right? If you find a biomolecule that's uniquely made by life, you've hit a home run, mm -hmm. right? So, but the reality is three billion years, it's very unlikely that a real biologically made organic molecule is going to survive. It's, we don't know it from Earth. Of course, Earth has different conditions. It's got heat and metamorphism, but we do have areas that are very well preserved, and we just don't get that preservation. Mm -hmm. And with the radiation on the surface of Mars, those molecules may well break down quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guide that we use to go and look for signs of life in these very old rocks is actually shapes. 
and structures, you know, even the microfossils themselves, they leave behind textures that you can see in the rock. Textures is almost always the first guide that we have to look for signs of life. Which is why we have so many imaging, imaging yeah, instruments. Exactly. Let's go look for those features that we know from on Earth and stuff. So, so of course, you know, you want to, and because also there have been claims of life on Mars before, the field is controversial, so you want to be really sure. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you may strike out on your gold standard, and what are you left with? Um, and there are lots of things that you can do, and that's really what what we're advocating for is a is a holistic, you know, environment and contextually based search proposal. Mm -hmm. Because there are some sites that have been suggested, so oh, we're going to go here and drill into an interesting rock, but they don't really know what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And would you risk two billion dollars on something you don't really know what you're looking for? It's I don't know. It's been interesting to see how that um, is developing. And, you know, there are a lot of very intelligent minds, big groups of people working on this problem. So it's not an easy solution. But we feel that the most likely chance of success to look for ancient life of Mars would be in a hot spring. So do you think that NASA might choose the, the next landing site that hasn't been chosen yet? Are you at all hopeful that there might be hot springs there? Listen, we're in the top three mm -hmm. sites that are still to be decided on. Uh, we've been at the landing site workshops for the last two years. I presented at the last one um, last February. And um, so listen, we're still in the game. Uh, it's not clear how that decision will be made, but we're still having input, and that's why we're still participating in these meetings. And what's been interesting is to see that there are more and more people talking about hot springs mm -hmm. from different points of view. Mm -hmm. So we heard one today about a really acidic volcanic lake, and mm -hmm. we heard about the studies that Steve Ruff is doing in, in Chile where there are these direct analogs for the features that he's found. Up. Like It's just amazing. So that's good to see. There is, there is movement. But whether that will turn out to be the, the right site for Mars 2020, we don't know. And of course, that's a mission with many different objectives mm -hmm. and many different tools. So, you know, we've sort of suggested one thing to look at, but they're interested in the whole program. And so there are always competing interests in a, in a complex mission. Springs, what's, yeah. what landing site are you advocating for? Well, so whether or not Mars 2020 goes, we would love to send a mission and just grab one of those micro-digitate opaline silica nodules mm -hmm. from home plate. That just looks so compelling. And I think it would be one of those cases where if there's no signs of life, then I would feel like there's not probably 
a very high possibility of life on Mars at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were able to get those back in the lab and have a look, it would be incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this might be a stupid question, but is Australia going to Mars? Australia is not going to Mars. We've only just announced just a few months ago that we're going to have a space agency. We've never had a space agency, but finally we got one. And um, so we would love... Sorry? The more the better. The more the better. New Zealand's got one, and so um, we've joined forces with with New Zealand from the astrobiology side, and um, ah, it could be a really nice project to say, let's go to Mars and grab those things. So we've been thinking about that for the future, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, a little off topic, but... I, I hope that one day, if the Mars 2020 rover can actually pick up samples and store it, if they can't go back and get those samples, I hope that sooner than NASA, somebody else can go there and pick them up. Exactly. But I don't know if politics would allow for that, but that would right. that would be like in science's best interest. So It would be in science's best interest. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of activity now. Like in 2020, I think there are five missions launching to Mars. Yeah. It's not just NASA. Europe's going. Um, uh, India, I think, is sending up a probe. China. Uh, the United Arab Emirates, China. So mm-hmm. it's getting busy. And now, of course, yeah. Elon Musk wants to go and live there. So I don't um, know why. I've been... I, I'm also part of the Mars group at Western. Yeah. And all of us are here. And... Um, after looking at thousands of pictures of Mars from the mass cam instrument, I would never want to go. There. You wouldn't want to go. <laughs> it's really it's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I would never want to actually go there. It's, this place no. is paradise. Oh, totally, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know if I would want to go to any other place after looking at pictures of. I mean, it's they're all beautiful, all the, all the moons and all the planets, but it's, yeah. Earth is paradise, it's not obviously. Home. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, you know, for the m- amount of money, I, you know, one thing that they don't talk about for those sort of colonization is the amount of money involved, right? Like, it's just astronomical, literally. And mm-hmm. so, you know, why wouldn't you spend that money on fixing up paradise? Yeah. So, anyway, those are um, those are longer-term issues. Yeah. So if if we do find any type of biosignature, what would that look like? Like what is I guess what I'm asking is like what is a biosignature? What what are you looking for specifically? Yeah, that's a, a great question also and, and a very complicated field of, of study and highly controversial. Mm-hmm. So the biomolecules, like I said, are sort of the gold standard. Um but there's always the worry about contamination because could be we us. heard a little, could be us. We could be introducing <laughs> life. There are ways to identify whether that's the case or not. Um, but there are a lot of textural biosignatures, so like preserved microfossils, um, preserved structures in the rock that are only made by microbial communities that are not just geology. What would that look like? Um, well, you know, on Earth really for three billion years of Earth history, it was dominated by structures called stromatolites. These are layered rock structures, um, but they're actually built by microorganisms. And so they don't look anything like normal geology, like, you know, ripples on the sand of the beach and that sort of thing, you know, stuff we're all familiar with. It looks completely different. And if you're really attuned to it, if you've worked in those for a long time, you see how the, the biological part of the rock interacts with the geological part as two separate 
processes that build, you know, the mm -hmm. units that we then go and see. So stromatolites are, are a big feature, um, microbial um, surfaces, microfossils, and then the microfossils often leave behind distinct textures at a very fine scale, mm -hmm. and those can sometimes also be completely unique and diagnostic. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that we have to look at. And for that, in a lot of cases, the samples would have to come back to Earth. Yeah. So that's the importance of the Mars 2020 mission, is to really bring those samples back. We can do a lot on Mars now, but still a lot of that really detailed investigation has to come back. Because mm -hmm. so, even the ChemCam or the, you know, yeah. the a APXS, there, we could, it's still not fine enough. Right. Some of it's not fine enough, exactly. And, um, you know, there were different proposals for instruments that could have gone on Mars 2020. And one of them was a really high-resolution advanced optical um, microscope, for example. And then you could really look for those textures in situ and see, is that sample of interest to collect? Is that sample of interest or not? And mm -hmm. um, But there are other instruments they've put on which do equally fascinating things. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a trade-off. And, um, you know... If, I mean, what's unbelievable about this mission is the amount of material and scientific instruments they can take up. Like, the amount of science they can do there is just fantastic. Even compared with two rovers ago, you know, it's increased in size almost by an order of magnitude, and, uh, you know, it's just going forward in leaps and bounds. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited for the future of... of students in science because they've got a great potential for making amazing discoveries still. Yeah, I'm excited that I'm in my 20s doing yeah, all of this. <laughs> absolutely. You'll be right on the on the front foot of those new discoveries. Yeah. So, yeah. The regular host of the show is obsessed with volcanic vents. Oh, yeah. You were very into hot springs, but what about volcanic vents? Do you think that there's any that there would be any hope there. By volcanic vents, do you mean where volcanoes erupt at the surface, or do you mean the, the black smokers, these hydrothermal vents at the deep oceans? That's the, what she means, The yeah. black smokers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, the interesting thing is that these black smoker, these hydrothermal vents, and hot springs, they share a lot in common. It's hot water interacting with rock, mm -hmm. altering and having those sharp chemical gradients and temperature gradients. That, that makes it exciting in terms of complexity and reactions. Mm -hmm. um, and sure, I mean, that's been the preferred model for the last 30 years for the origin of life, and still is for many very big groups. But as I mentioned, and as I said in my talk, and, and this is the work of others, a permanently wet environment like the deep oceans is a problem for getting life started. It's too dilute. The black smokers particularly are too acidic and too hot, but mm. they just don't have the capacity to make these long-chain organics. And we are based on long-chain organics. And all of life is, like not just us complex things, but every single microbe has got these organic polymers. That's what makes their cell wall, it makes the DNA, it makes everything. And so to get that, you have to have that power of wetting and drying to bind those molecules together. Or else they would just break apart. They just dissolve. It's mm -hmm. just like sugar soluble. in water. It's just soluble. They just dissolve. And that's been known for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the magic of life 
is making a protective layer that keeps that dissolvable material inside, together, collective, organized, self-replicating. Those are all the things that we don't understand. Still just an enormous amount of intensive research to do. Mm-hmm. But one thing I'm very excited about is, is a developing field called messy chemistry. Like you would have been taught in high school about the Linnaean categorization of birds and species. It's all in this you know, tree of life and everything. It all goes from A to B to C. Very nice and organized. But now there are these fields that for something as complex as life or a city or a neural network to develop, it's not linear. You just throw stuff together and see what happens. You need like multitudes of reactions, and, and one reaction will change what happens with the other reactions. And you know, it's nonlinear. So, this idea of nonlinear dynamics is increasingly interesting in terms of building complexity. The challenge is to see how you can focus that messiness into something that then becomes organized. And I think as a, as a community, we're only just starting on that. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's a huge field of, of opening up in, uh, in origin of life studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually my next question was, what are you most excited about for the future of your field? <laughs> well, I think, I think that would be it. I, th- I think it would be starting to devise um, um, experiments where you can somehow sort of manufacture this idea of messy chemistry. Not just have one reactive incubator, but have 25, and then see what happens when you mix them all together or change sequences. You know, Now with computer technology controlling uh, flow rates and inputs, and you know, we've got so sophisticated, you can do a whole bunch of things. And just let it run for 15 years and see what comes out the other. Who knows? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people smarter than me who can, who can devise those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's where I, I think the next big discoveries are going to be made. Mm-hmm. And it's mixing you know, biologists with chemists, with physicists and biologists, and, and put them all together and, and put their minds at looking at this, um, at this problem. I, I think that's, uh, that's a really exciting field. So is it, would it be like chaotic chemistry? <laughs> yeah, it is almost kind of. trying to harness chaos, you know? And you can think of the Big Bang like that. You can think of a star like that. It's harnessing that energy. And then finding out how how you organize that into a system that becomes regulated somehow, mm-hmm. right? Because life is it's a chemical system, but it's got an organizational framework to it that actually runs against entropy, right? Entropy breaks everything down. Mm-hmm. Second law of thermodynamics is always going to make a, sol- a steady state at an even level, but we build up against that, and life builds up against that. So at some point, we have to start understanding how that works in a natural system mm-hmm. and what the dividing line is between chemistry and life. So those are still very big questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing once you start thinking about it. Yeah, I was really kind of surprised about the Titan Enceladus Europa diagnosis. Yeah. So like, yeah, I think a lot of people were. Yeah, but um, that's important though for also the listeners to to kind of get at because we at, at least our show is very helpful we're, we're really optimistic the thing I guess that we're learning too and you know if, if we take single end members you might say this planet good that planet bad but there's exchange of information between planets too 
we know we've got Mars meteorites on Earth, and there are probably Earth meteorites on the Moon, and so, you know, there is exchange. And so that question of did life arise only once in one place, or could it have gone somewhere else, and if the conditions were right, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's maybe naive to say, oh, it couldn't happen there or could happen there. Habitability is still very important. Does it have the right conditions? But also, as I've been stressing, does it have the conditions to make life? Mm-hmm. And so people have often suggested that, oh, life started on Mars and then came to Earth. But I, I don't feel that solves the problem. And Earth, we know, has the right conditions, or at least as far as we know. Um, so it's a bit like you not wanting to go to Mars to live there. We've got everything we need here. It's mm-hmm. just how we manage it. So a little bit like that with... Um, with getting started for life too. It's um, my feeling is it's a homegrown affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was one guy uh, in the end of that session, that whole session. He went up and he, he said something about how it's it's really easy to to like make those polymers if you have the right conditions. So why would you? Why would it just be in one spot, like one yeah. one planet that it could start when it could? Yeah. Be in a bunch of places. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, and you know, the basic building blocks of, of life as we know it are, are common throughout the universe. Mm. Carbon is very common, oxygen is everywhere and, mm-hmm. and stuff. So, that, that basic building blocks is simple. Mm-hmm. It's the organizational framework that's more complex. Mm-hmm. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to say that I didn't get to ask you? No, I don't think so. I think we touched really on most things. I mean, it's nice that you asked about the future and the exciting developments, and um, I think we've spoken about that. So, Cool. I'm happy. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE Spark Radio and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded on location at the Woodlands Convention Center in the Woodlands, Texas. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andrew Norton, and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.